I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature related to Israel-Palestine. Later on, we'll be hearing from returning guest Grant F. Smith. On New York Times op-ed columnist Thomas Friedman, and whether or not he ended up running cover as a journalist for an Israeli nuclear smuggling operation back in the 1980s. It's a story that involves Hollywood movie mogul and Israeli spy Arnon Milchan and current Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. All that and more in the second half of the program. But first, Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Olam blog returns to discuss the recent eruption of violence in Israel-Palestine, with a particular focus on the Janine massacre and the deadly shooting outside a synagogue in East Jerusalem that followed shortly thereafter. We'll also discuss anti-government protests against Benjamin Netanyahu and his plans for judicial reform in Israel, religious violence and conflict escalation, big tech startups and the Israeli economy, the permanent banning of Mondo Weiss, a media outlet very critical of Israel, from TikTok, and much, much more. As always, Richard does not mince his words and speaks his mind, so this conversation could get a little bit controversial but I hope you'll find it fascinating. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Olam blog.
Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest I always enjoy speaking with. He's been covering issues related to Israel, Palestine, uh, Judaism, and uh, Zionism. Richard Silberstein of Tikkun Olam, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So, Richard, uh, there's a lot going on right now uh, to talk about. I mean, we just had this horrible massacre in Janine. Uh, and that was followed by uh, the synagogue attack in East Jerusalem. So every just violence has exploded, it seems like, um, you know, and, and Netanyahu is in power again. So, I, I mean, wh- where do we start? I mean, everything seems to be in chaos right now when we talk about Israel-Palestine. So uh, let's add some context for your viewers. Um, in November, a new Israeli government was elected. It was uh, what I call a fascist government, maybe the first one in the history of the country. And um, it uh, escalated all of the tension and the hatred on the part of uh, Israeli leaders for Palestinians and uh, their total rejection of any kind of compromise with the Palestinians or any interest in negotiating an agreement um, that would solve the uh, issues outstanding. So um, that caused a a huge vacuum uh, because there was no longer any sense of engagement or any willingness uh, on the Israeli part to uh, compromise. So the Palestinians felt even more hopeless than they were. And that um, aroused um, the sense of hopelessness arouses this desire to um, to respond with resistance. And that's what has caused in, in March, earlier in March, there were four terrorist attacks in Israel by Palestinians. And that started Israel responding with nightly raids on almost all of the major villages and towns in the West Bank. And in each of these raids, the Palestinians themselves responded by defending their villages, and that caused the Israelis to kill Palestinians virtually every day. One or more Palestinians were killed, and that is what led up to the Janine massacre, where the Israelis were supposedly seeking out a terrorist to arrest, and the community, the Palestinian community, rose up in um, revolt and went out to defend their community. And whenever that happens, um, you get a ragtag group of Palestinians with uh, kind of rudimentary uh, weapons and no sort of um, sense of tactics, and Israeli snipers pick them off one by one. And in this incident, instead of one Palestinian being killed, 10 were killed. And uh, one of them was a grandmother, 61 years old, I think one of them was a child, if I recall, um, and and that just created a huge amount of outrage, even more than normal, amongst the Palestinians. And it, as a result, a 21-year-old Palestinian decided he was going to attack Israel. He went to a settlement in East Jerusalem. Uh, he was not attacking a synagogue. It just happened accidentally that the attack was outside of his synagogue. He was not directly intending to attack uh, any Jews who were coming out of the synagogue and praying. It was not a, an anti-Semitic incident. It was an attack on Israel and on Israelis. We do keep hearing, I keep seeing the tweets and whatnot. He attacked the synagogue. He attacked. So I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, it's, it was not, you know, it's very easy for Jews and especially pro-Israel 
uh, Jews to jump to conclusions that make um, Palestinian resistance look like it's anti-Semitic or it's hatred, it's eternal Jew hatred and, and stuff like that. But that's not at all what was what is the case generally or in this instance. So uh, that attack ended up killing, I think, seven or eight Israelis. And since then, there have been other Palestinian attacks that have wounded Israelis. Even a 13-year-old boy, Palestinian, um, uh, took a, a gun and he uh, attempted to kill Israelis and he wounded several. And he was uh, not killed, but he was wounded himself and then arrested. So they now have a 13-year-old in custody um, for, for uh, engaging in resistance. And um, it's it's also important to realize many people, many Israelis, Jews, and many Jews around the world react with shock and disgust whenever there's a terror attack against Israelis. But they don't realize that the reason for the attacks is that it's an act of resistance against Israeli attacks. So the Israeli attacks I call terror attacks. They're no different except that the state is behind the violence. So they're no different than a Palestinian terror attack. The only difference is there's no Palestine, there's no state, there's just this amorphous uh, entity called the Palestinian Authority. Um, and that is because there's no state because Israel refuses to permit one. So um, I think it's really important that we, uh, and this is something I never have been willing to do in the, until the last few years, which is basically to say uh, Palestinian resistance is totally legitimate by any means necessary, to quote Malcolm X. Um, whether it's violence, whether it's nonviolent, whether it's BDS, all forms of resistance are legitimate because Israel engages itself in all forms of attack and violence against the Palestinians. If Israel was acting in any way that was proportional and in any way that a Western democracy and military might act, I might say differently, but it doesn't. And therefore the Palestinian response is legitimate. So let's delve into that a bit more because I know uh, that that's going to be considered controversial, right? Um, what you just said that you right. know, violence is a legitimate form of resistance. Um, could you speak more to why you've taken that stance? And also, maybe if you could, uh, we could speak a little bit more about what happened in Janine uh, leading up to all this, because I feel like, you know, that's that's missing in a lot of the talk I'm hearing about what happened in East Jerusalem. You know, it's almost like we, we are completely ignoring the massacre that happened in Janine uh, and only focusing on the attack on the East Jerusalem settlement. Well, Janine has been a hotbed of Palestinian resistance for years. Uh, during the Second Intifada, Israel actually invaded Janine and uh, basically occupied Janine. And there was also a similar kind of resistance. In fact, there's a popular Israeli movie called Janine, um, which uh, people may want to dig up on. Uh, I don't know if it's where, what streaming service it might be on, but it's a very good, interesting movie. So um, there, there's a group called... Um, uh, lions, a lion's den, or something like that, and that's based in Janine. And those, uh, that group has been responsible for some of the terror attacks uh, against Israelis. So what you have is the IDF going in with hundreds of troops every night to a number of different Palestinian towns. They uh, surround the town. They block the town off at two or three in the morning. They launch hundreds of stun grenades, tear gas throughout the town. 
they target a, a house or whatever where they want to arrest someone. And if there's any resistance whatsoever, they uh, unleash massive firepower in that town or village. And as a result, Palestinians are killed. Some are bystanders who have nothing to do with anything. In one case, there was a man who went to help a Palestinian who was wounded, and he himself was killed. Um, the man was a, a father of four. Um, and that's the sort of thing that happens routinely. So when you have that kind of thing happening, uh, you naturally feel uh, you've got to respond. You've got to resist. You're a human being. Uh, anyone who can imagine their own community invaded nightly by a foreign hostile force can imagine, hopefully, that they would re resist, they would respond, and their children would want to respond. And in some cases, we have children as old as 13 or 14 taking up a weapon and telling their parents, in one case, a child wrote a, basically a suicide note. And he said, Mom, forgive me for doing this, but you know... I have to defend our beloved uh, camp, Haisha, uh, in this case. And uh, I hope you'll forgive me for what I've done, and I hope we meet in paradise. So this is a 13-year-old child. So how can I, sitting here in Seattle, Washington, with a comfortable life, with a safe community, relatively safe, in a country that has relative democracy, how can I say that Palestinian boy who's seen his cousins and his brothers and relatives and friends killed in cold blood by Israelis. How can I tell that person, you do not have the right to resist? How can I tell that person what form they're resisting? It's not upon me to do that. And, excuse me, getting a little emotional here. Um, and anyone else like me who decides that they are going to explain to the Palestinians what they can or can't do, has an enormous level of chutzpah. Um, I do not feel I have a right to tell them any act or behavior that is wrong that they're engaging in. If, as I said before, there was any kind of proportionality, if there was kind of a, a lid that, pal that Israel used in terms of its level of violence, I might be willing to calibrate what I said a little bit, but there is none at all. Therefore, I say to the Palestinians, you do whatever you feel is appropriate or necessary. So then how should Israelis respond to what happened in East Jerusalem? Uh, and I, I mean, we can't really dictate the response, right? I mean, we're in America, but how, how should they be responding to things like the attack in East Jerusalem? Well, the way I answer that question is it's very simple. Uh, complicated, obvious, but it's simple in in uh, what could or should happen. And that is sit down at a negotiating table, come up with a solution. Either you come up with a two-state solution where Israel recognizes Palestine and Palestine recognizes Israel, and we have the 67 borders, and you have a, that solution, or a more difficult one perhaps in some ways, we have a one-state solution where everything is democratic and proportional, and you have all of the Jews and the Palestinians from the river to the sea in one state, and that's a dem that's a democracy where each ethnic group has its own identity and its own political parties, and they all meet together in one legislative body, and they have a prime minister and a president. Um, that's the solution. Now, 
if Israel wants to reject those two possibilities, which is it has done historically over the past few decades, then the Palestinians get nothing. If you give the Palestinians nothing, there isn't going to be a solution to the conflict and the violence is going to continue. So the Israelis who blame the Palestinians for resisting are neglecting or rejecting the obvious solution, the obvious way to resolve this, the way that these conflicts have been resolved in other places in the world, like Northern Ireland, like countries which have an ethnic mix of different ethnic groups, which have figured out how to respect the rights of the different ethnic groups. And we can talk about Canada, we can talk about Switzerland, we can talk about Belgium. Those are all countries which have defined ethnic groups living together in one country. And they have figured out ways to give representation to each ethnic group such that they all feel that they have representation within the national consensus. That is something that the Jews refuse because they believe that Israel must be a state only for Jews. Even though there are a million non-Jews, a million Palestinians living in Israel who are citizens, the nation-state law, which was just passed within the past year or two by Israel, says it's a state only for Jews. The language is no longer Arabic and Hebrew, only Hebrew. The, the place, the state, is only for Jews, and Judeo-supremacy is what is the lingua franca right now of Israel. It means basically that Israel rejects any possibility of, of the outcomes that I mentioned. So... It's basically right now a hopeless situation, I, I'm sorry to say. With regards to what happened in Janine, I think everyone, I mean, including myself, I think what has happened in East Jerusalem is very sad. I think there's a lot of sorrow in that, right? But as you point out, it seems like, you know, for everyone that's that's uh, rightfully saddened about this tragic uh, occurrence, you know, this violent um, attack that happened, I mean, ultimately, you have people like Biden calling Netanyahu, expressing outrage. But what about Janine? I mean, what, why why is that not being discussed alongside this? What do you think is like, what, why are we ignoring what happened just a few days prior uh, and not putting that into the context? Israel has done an excellent job over the decades of uh, uh, marketing itself to the world as a, a liberal democracy which it's not, it's never actually been. At least in the past, it has some semblage, some vestiges of democracy. Um, that's all been thrown out the window with this new fascist government, which is homophobic and misogynist and um, um, is basically turning into a theocracy. Um, but um, uh, the problem with the United States uh, position is, it's totally bankrupt. It's spineless. It's not responsive to anything that's actually going on. We do have Biden calling personally Netanyahu, as you mentioned. We have State Department's statements of outrage. Uh, I heard a State Department spokesman choke up with emotion when he was denouncing what happened in Jerusalem. What is the response of the U.S. government to Janine? The response is concern, concern, that word alone. Nothing else. The Palestinians, because they have not marketed themselves as well as the Israelis, are viewed as primitive, violent, uh, lawless, 
uh, un, unsophisticated, uncivilized. That's the uh, that's the picture that Israel has tried to paint of the Palestinians. They're not a partner for peace. That's another common phrase. So the United States has bought into, and and this isn't true necessarily of Americans, but it's true of members of Congress. It's true of every president. They buy into this picture of Israel as a civilized democracy. Therefore, whenever an act of terror happens, oh my God, oh my gosh, you know, this is uh, the Israeli democracy being attacked and, and assaulted like we were in 9-11. We have to go and we have to sit, tell the Israelis not only how shocked and angered we are, but you, by the way, you go right ahead and you defend yourself because you're only engaging in self-defense. I think that veneer is slowly fading. And I think with the rise in politics of the squad and Bernie Sanders having a much more critical approach to Israel, I think the scales are starting to fall from people's eyes a little bit. I think the rise of BDS as a nonviolent form of resistance to Israel's policies is also gaining traction. Um, and I think that people are less inclined to buy Israeli marketing hook, line, and sinker than they have been in the past. How would you respond to people? Because I feel like there's going to be uh, someone that tries to smear you saying, well, you don't even care about about what happened in East Jerusalem. Like, why? why what, what about us? What? How do you risk? Because I don't think either of us are denying that it's tragic. Well, let's talk a little bit about my personal story. I'm Jewish, obviously. And when I was a teenager in 1967, I attended a rally for Israel. Um, because we American Jews believed that Israel was under attack and uh, that it was uh, possible that it would fail, that it would be defeated and uh, that whatever disaster would happen would be the outcome. And we imagined, you know, the Israeli Jews being thrown into the sea, you know, that old saw that people used to use. Um, and, and I was for many decades a liberal Zionist. Um, that is, I believed Israel was a liberal democracy. I believe that there was a solution. Uh, there could be a two-state solution that came later in my, my views in the 1980s. Um, and in the last 20 years or so, I've realized that there is no such solution. Uh, there is none for only one reason, because Israel refuses to have one. So my views have changed. Um, I still obviously am Jewish. I still obviously feel some sense of a spiritual bond to Israel as a spiritual concept, but I feel no bond at all with Israeli policies, no bond at all with an Israeli fascist government. And um, I don't identify some of the Israeli Jews who are the most radical, extreme, and violent, like the settlers um, and the group called the Hilltop Youth, which engage in acts of terrorism. I don't even concede that they're Jewish. I call them Judeo-settlers, Judeo-terrorists, Judeo-fascists, any kind of term like that. And I don't want to use the term Jewish because it's not Jewish. It's not a Jewish value to uh, to murder other people. It's not a Jewish value to steal their land and to, um, and to treat them. I'm going to say something more that's controversial, but to treat them very much like the Nazis treated the Jews in, uh, in, in the Holocaust. Um, yes, there's a distinction between uh, 
genocide, extermination of the Jews, and what Israel is doing. But otherwise, if you look at the policies that Israel is invoking against the Palestinians, if you match up, for an example, Mayor Kahana, who is the ideological father of this government, fascist father of this government, his views, if you put them up against the Nuremberg laws, they match completely one by one by one. I was going to say, it's always fascinated me when you read um, Mayor Kahana's writings. I mean, he talks about, you know, he wants the Jewish people to be like a, a Judaic warrior people. And it reminds me of how very far right wing people talk about, you know, this like weird, almost like mystical pagan, like warrior idea of what men should be. Uh, there is this th there's parallels there, you know. Obviously, I, I mean, yes, that clearly there are. And I did write a blog post about that if uh, anybody listening uh, wants to go and look at what specifically the parallels are between the two. Um, and, and Kahana had the same sense of grievance that Hitler did for different reasons, but he had a huge sense of grievance about the suffering of the Jewish people during the Holocaust, and that justified them turning into the same kind of warrior, angry, violent uh, people that uh, the Nazis turned into with uh, Wehrmacht and the SS and uh, and the war that uh, they they prosecuted during World War II. Um, Israel, Kahana wanted the same kind of thing to happen in Israel. He wanted to throw out all the Palestinians. He wanted to invite them to leave. But if they didn't leave, he was prepared to engage in violence to force them to leave. Um, so the the connection now between Kahana and the current situation is that you now have senior ministers in this government who are disciples of Kahana. Ben Giver, Smote Rich, yeah. Itamar Ben Gvir, he's now the police minister. That's a senior ministerial role. And Bitsalo Smotrich, who's now controlling everything that's going to happen on the West Bank and the settlements. Um, they are going to 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 fulfill Kahana's vision. And not it's not just these two ministers, because if you look at the program of this government, it is the direct uh, successor to what Kahana's vision was. So Kahana even though he was assassinated in 1991 in New York City, he his impact is greater on Israeli politics than any other individual, uh, bar none. And so um, he is the spiritual father of the current Israeli government. And he is where, what if you read Kahana, this is where Israel is headed. How do you respond when people... Uh... And, and we'll get into other areas, but but I, I feel it's always important to discuss this is when you're very adamant about using the term uh, Judeo-fascism to describe uh, what the Israeli government has become. Uh, so when people say, OK, that's a bridge too far, you, you can't be calling it fascism or Judeo-fascism. How do you respond to those people? Well, Israelis themselves are using the term. Um, there was a, a placard that was held up, you know, there hundreds of thousands of Israelis demonstrating every week, every weekend against the government and against, I, we haven't even talked about this, but their fascist program calls for the dismantling of the Supreme Court. We're taking away the ability of the Supreme Court to review laws and declare them unconstitutional. It is um, going to take away the right of nominating judge to, judges to the Supreme Court by an independent body. 
the uh, the government will be the one to decide who is put on the Supreme Court. The ministries will uh, no longer they have lawyers associated with the ministries who tell the ministries whether they can approve a regulation or not. The lawyers will now be appointed by the minister himself and not by any independent body. This is essentially dismantling democracy. Um, they also want to segregate women on buses and say they can't travel with, with men. They also uh, uh, want to eliminate the Gay Pride Day every year in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and, and a couple of other cities. Uh, so it's not only is a Jewish theocracy in addition to um, Jewish fascism. And Israelis themselves, and this gets back to what I was starting to say before, there was a sign at one of the demonstrations which had the SS logo, you know, the Thunderbolt logo, and um, called this government a dictatorship. Um, so the Israelis themselves are using the terms that are likening the government to Nazism and also to fascism. And this is this is prevalent throughout the media. They're using the term Judeo-fascism, or not Judeo-fascism, but fascism to describe the government. So I didn't invent the term, um, but I'm very happy. I'm, I'm very com um, comfortable using it. With regards to the United States, uh, we just had uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken uh, make a visit to the region. Uh, let's comment on that, because I know you have some strong opinions and and I mean, I I think you've said straight up that, you know, the U.S. stance on these issues is one of spinelessness. What does the U.S. offer? What is it offering? I think in a, in a sense, I think Biden is smart politically because there's nothing he can do here. He was a vice president during the Obama administration. Obama tried desperately, intensively to come up with a solution that John Kerry kept negotiating between Netanyahu and Abbas to try to come up with an agreement that would resolve the issues and there would be some kind of a peace agreement. But essentially, Netanyahu sabotaged the whole thing. When the offer was on the table, he said no. Um, he kept prolonging it as long as he could to uh, so keep the United States on the hook so that we wouldn't be able to say, finally, it, it, it ended, it failed. He didn't want to be blamed, but that's essentially what happened. So why would Biden want to invest any political capital knowing that that's going to be the outcome again? The problem is with that, maybe smart politically for him, the problem is that the United States has basically ceded any kind of meaningful role here. It can't offer anything to anyone. So Blinken went to uh, Israel, he went to Palestine, and the only thing he could say to the Israelis was, please tone it down, tone the violence down. And when you want to go into a Palestinian town, don't bring hundreds of troops, maybe bring a hundred instead. Don't bring, you know, the massive amounts of weapons and armory. Instead of killing 10 Palestinians, see if you can do make do with only one or, you know, every other day killing a Palestinian. I'm, I'm sort of dramatizing this. But that's essentially what he's saying. Tone it down. And he's going to the Palestinians and saying, you need to do no more. You need to find the terrorists before they attack. That's your job. 
Well, it is not the job of the Palestinians. It is not the job of Abbas or the Palestinian Authority to do Israel's bidding and to save Israel from terror attacks. That's yeah, not their quick, job. People, for people that don't know, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas is the he's the president of the Palestinian Authority. But go on. The unelected president of the Palestinian Authority, who's once elected in 2006, and he's been in power since then. Um, so. Abbas himself is dysfunctional. He runs a kleptocratic uh, regime there, and he doesn't really even have control of uh, Palestinian territory. Um, that's now controlled basically by uh, Palestinian groups and militias um, that run the place uh, because he's uh, abdicated any kind of control or responsibility. In other words, the Palestinian Authority is you know, deeply corrupt. Deeply corrupt and dysfunctional, and it doesn't run like uh, a normal country would run. Uh, it's also corrupt. So um, the United States comes and has nothing to offer. I mean, what what is Blinken doing? Why is he even there? The, the thing that he might be talking about with Israel is what they're going to do with Iran, whether they're going to attack Iran, how they're going to proceed with Iran, because Israel and Iran have this uh, major hostile uh, rivalry, which we'll talk about another time, maybe. Um, but that's the only thing that um, the United States can offer Israel. Um, and the Israelis are, are um, what's the right word? The, the Israelis insult the U.S. to our face. We have one minister who's the minister to relate to the Jewish diaspora, who himself denigrated American Jews who believe in the Black Lives Matter movement and who are supportive of the LGBT movement. Uh, he d deliberately and personally insulted all American Jews, and this is the guy who's supposed to uh, interact with Jews in the diaspora. So this government disparages and um, and hates diaspora Jewry. So you have that dynamic operating as well. I was because... going to say that that dynamic's really interesting because it gets into another uh, point of analysis that you make, which is that increasingly the Netanyahu government, uh, you know, they're leaning towards Christian evangelicals, the the type of people who referred to Jews as the Christ killers, uh, right. you know, and I mean they're leaning more on them as many liberal American Jews. Um, maybe don't want to associate as much with Israel or, or or at least not with the Netanyahu government. Well, the polls show among American Jews and Americans in general a decline in support for Israel, a uh, an increase, a slower increase, but an increase in support for the Palestinians, uh, less resistance to BDS, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. Um, and American Jews... I don't know if you would use a strong as strong a term as hate, but Netanyahu. But I would say that's pretty accurate. Uh, they don't. There's barely any support for Netanyahu at all among American Jews, except in the Orthodox community. Yeah, I, I was going to say my, my understanding because the thing that I will always hear is, you know, people say, "Oh, well, most American Jews are still still consider themselves Zionists," and that may be true. But uh, most American Jews, uh, if you were to look at polling. Uh, from my understanding, are put off by Netanyahu's government. Absolutely. And, um, you know, an American Jew might say, yes, I'm a Zionist. But if you probed, what does that mean to them? Does it mean that you support the Netanyahu government? No. Does it mean you support the occupation? 
No. Does it mean that you support a state which discriminates and treats one million of its citizens as um, um, second-class citizens? No. So that Netanyahu clearly understands that American Jews are alienated from what he is and what he politically represents. So he doesn't want he, – he's a Republican or he supports the Republicans, um, and he's done commercials for Mitt Romney running for president as a Republican. He hates the Democrats. He hates liberal Democrats. He, know that they're, he knows they're most critical of Israel, and therefore he turns to evangelicals because they have no criticism of Israel. They support everything that Israel does. They understand that Israel needs to take control of all of the biblical uh, Israel in order for the messianic end times to come. So you have Israeli messianists, the settlers that I mentioned before, messianists who believe that if we take Israel takes control of all of this territory, West Bank, Gaza, and makes it into one state, that the Messiah will come, the Jewish Messiah will come. The Christians believe that if Israel does all these things, then their Messiah will come. Those two messiahs are not going to do the same thing or be the same thing, even though they're supposed. Well, the Jews don't believe that it will be Jesus who will be the Messiah. That's uh, there's no specific identity for who that would be. But the outcome, uh, if there was a messianic, you know, uh, reality, is very different for Christians and Jews. But anyway, that's who they've turned to. They've turned to these Christians who historically have inflicted huge levels of suffering on Jews, and now they're the new best friends of Israel. I think something else we should talk about before wrapping up is, um, you know, you've done a few articles recently about uh, protests in Israel and also, um, you know, uh, Israeli big tech companies uh, how do they fit into your analysis of the current situation in Israel? Well, I think there's some controversy among uh, people in this anti-government movement who um, feel like they want to save Israeli democracy. Although, you know, there's I, I don't ever concede that there is an Israeli democracy, but at least they want to preserve what the vestige of, of it that did exist where you had a court that could uh, there were checks and balances between the different branches of government and this government wants to eliminate that so these demonstrators 100,000 uh, appearing in rallies uh, most weekends want to preserve that um, but a former Shin Bet chief um, the domestic intelligence agency in Israel uh, who's dissident like in terms of politics and opposed to Netanyahu he's called for general strikes in Israel I don't think there have ever been general strikes in Israel he's called for a massive wrench in the works of the Israeli economy which is booming by the way and one of the reasons why it can afford to be so uh, resist any compromise um, is that the economy is booming and everyone is happy or except for the poor in Israel the Jewish and the Palestinian poor but the um, most Israelis are happy to start up nation. The tech industry is a huge part of this economy. So there are people starting to call for the tech startups to strike. And there actually was a one-hour strike of several of the tech companies. And they're calling for the economy to be brought to a halt. And uh, if that were to happen, it would 
exponentially increase the level of resistance to the government. It would um, really put the government, the current government, into a corner. And eventually, if it was, if it worked, and the economy did decline, um, it would force the government to adjust or compromise or eliminate some of these worst uh, policies that they want to implement. So it's an interesting approach, and we have to kind of see whether it happens and what impact it will have. But other demonstrators have said that these tech companies and their wealth that they generate is part of the problem, like um, the Occupy Wall Street movement in the United States, which uh, talked about the the 99% and the 1%. Um, Israel has a 1% as well. And the uh, top most uh, wealthy and powerful businesses really have never wanted to um, be involved in politics as long as the government let them chug along and keep making their profits and keep uh, the billions in, in investments in the tech industry come into Israel. As long as that money was flowing, uh, they were sitting pretty. So uh, there's a little bit of controversy about whether the uh, whether the big uh, corporate monoliths uh, could have or should even have uh, be included in this movement. What should the main takeaway be when it comes to talking about these protests and demonstrations? I mean, they're against uh, the, the sort of judicial overhaul that Netanyahu's government is pushing for. Uh, so could you talk a little bit more about what's significant about these protests? Well, I'm, I feel ambivalent about the whole thing, and I'll tell you why. Um, <clears throat> if you believe that Israel can uh, reform itself, not in the sense that the current government is saying that it wants to reform the Supreme Court by dismantling it, but I mean reform it in terms of making it better, make the system better, make it work better. Um, don't radically change the system, but nibble around the edges um, and keep what little semblance of democracy that it has, keep it chugging along. If uh, that, um, you know, I think most people tend to feel that way. That's the best outcome. Um, I'm of two minds about it. I, my sort of pessimistic uh, view would be that the worse things are, the more dire they become, the heavier, the more intense the crisis, the more the violence, the more the fascism and and um, and 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 killing and and sort of uh, massacres, the more likely that it will bring a final crisis. So, if you want to look at, for example, it's 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 not something that I I I, um, I welcome in thinking about this. But if you look at Rwanda, if you look at Serbia, if you look at um, Pol Pot in, in, in Cambodia, things got to such a point that the world realized that it needed to intervene. It needed to stop it. Right now, the world is indifferent. Right now, the leaders of the world have no willingness to intervene and do anything in this situation. It took a Srebrenica in, uh, in, 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 uh, in Bosnia, uh, it took 800,000 killed in Rwanda. It took uh, two or four million killed in Cambodia before anyone 
was willing to say enough. We need to stop this. We need to intervene. That may be what needs to happen here. And the only way it will happen if things get worse than they are. I know that that means huge levels of suffering on both sides. I think we run out of options, you know, and and I don't see in the long term anything other than that sort of uh, process playing out. And it really grieves me to have to say that. Um, but I've been through optimism for many decades and thinking that if this happened or that happened and the right leader was elected, uh, the right dovish liberal leader was elected, then they would be willing to negotiate a two-state solution. But there have been so-called liberal prime ministers elected in the past 20 or 30 years, and they didn't do anything because they didn't want to buck the status quo. So I don't think internally Israel is possible. It's possible that anything positive will come up, uh, come from Israel internally, politically, or otherwise. It's going to have to be some kind of external force that um, that that brings all of this mess to a close. If you look at what happened in Kosovo, there was an intervention, and Serbia had to relinquish control of Kosovo. Um, and there, I think there's a greater barrier to that happening because Israel is a much more powerful uh, brand and, and marketing power and, and lobbying that's going on in the world. Um, but that's eventually the only way that this can be resolved. Where do you see things heading from here? Uh, because, I mean, you, you know, figures like Itmar Ben-Giver have been, in my view, gunning for a violent conflagration. I think that's what a figure like him wants. And I I think many others who follow in his footsteps uh, want a violent conflagration to happen. Uh, Do you think they're going to get that? I mean, where is this headed? Well, one thing I haven't talked about is what, excuse me, what is the vision of Ben-Gvir? What is the vision of Smotrich? And what is the vision of the settler movement? And that is, they are religious um, and they want to restore the third temple. There were two temples prior that were destroyed in ancient times and they want to build a third temple. And in order to do it, they will have to destroy Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is Haram al-Sharif in Arabic. They will have to destroy that. And when they do, or if they do, there will be basically a huge conflict with the, uh, the Muslim world. And I don't know how that would play out, but um, we've seen nothing like it. This is what they want. They want end times, the Jewish version of end times. They want to force Palestinians to leave Israel. They want Israel to be a Jewish Judeo-supremacist state. They want this third temple. They want a state that is ruled by, by Torah. They want a state ruled by Jewish law. They want a theocracy. Um, and they won't stop until that happens. So what you said about wanting a violent, uh, uh, their their vision is a, a, of one of a violent uh, outcome. I, I agree. That's what they want. They want the Palestinians to be vanquished completely and utterly. They don't want to go in with these piecemeal things of troops going into towns and villages and killing one or two. They want a massive invasion of the West Bank, they want to throw out all the Palestinians that are there and assume total control. Um, and that's their vision. And the world does not recognize that's their vision. If it did, it might out. It might act sooner. 
Um, and it will take a long time before the world comes to understand this. And I would predict if I had a crystal ball that at some point in the future, someone like Ben Gavir, if not himself, will become prime minister. And this is the direction that Israel is heading in the short, medium, or long term. So before closing out, uh, you, one of your most recent articles talks about uh, sort of a toxic brew in Israel. And I like that you use that term, uh, a toxic brew. What is that toxic brew? I believe it's in your article, Terror, Religion, and Politics. But why do you specifically call it a toxic brew? And, and what has brought all these three elements together? Well, the way that most countries resolve conflict, most successful countries, democratic countries, is they have ways in which all sides can participate. And there is a debate and there's an election and whichever side is, whichever party is the most persuasive ends up fulfilling its vision. And the opposition will have some impact and input and try to attempt to um, persuade the uh, citizens of a country that their approach is, is better, and you can have a give and take happen. That's what happens in a democracy, and that's what politics is. That's what secular politics is. Israel has had vestiges of a secular politics. There's a Knesset and the elections and the parties, you know, and, and there have been different parties. Well, although I should say that from 1948 until 1977, one party ruled, the Labor Party, 1977 to 2023, basically one party ruled Likud. So it's more of a one-party state with a vestige of democracy. Um, however, there's an introduction into Israel and Palestine of a religious element. So it's not just politics happening here, it's religion. And once you infuse into a political disagreement, religion, the whole process becomes much different, much more violent, much more fundamentalist, much more extreme. Because once you invoke God instead of a secular political agenda, then everyone feels that they need to defend and they have this super passionate view of, because they believe God has ordained whatever their political view is. And that gives them a super right to impose their divine view or their what their God views as necessary. And that's why the settlers believe God gave all of Israel to the Jewish people for all eternity. And that is much more powerful than a political party coming and say, I want to do X, Y, or Z. And that's what that toxic brew is, because the the Jews have, uh, this, the most extremist Jews have uh, this agenda of destroying the Al-Aqsa Mosque and creating this third temple, which would uh, sort of create an end times Armageddon type of situation. And the Palestinians have responded with their own Islamist fundamentalist version, and that's uh, Hamas. So that, it, it becomes that, a cycle of, of like escalating violence, essentially. Right, because Allah for, for Hamas tells them that they must resist the infidels and the invaders, and uh, they must defend the faith, they must defend Al-Aqsa, and the Jews on their side feel like god gave me this land i will do whatever it takes to keep it i won't give up an inch of it it's sacred holy land where the prophets walked 
and I am continuing that, and I'm going to bring Messianic times if I can fulfill all of those things. So you can see, I think, that that takes the conflict to a whole entirely different level, and neither side can compromise, because if you compromise your views, then you're letting God down, you're letting Allah down. Um, and I'm more it interested. It basically in the precludes the the possibility of diplomacy because both sides are so, uh, right. you know, hell bent on their own vision. Yeah, and it keeps escalating. Yeah. So in secular politics, you can come up with a compromise. Both sides can say, "Well, I'm willing to give up this if I get that." So that allows compromise, and that's why politics just alone you can often come up with a way in which everybody can live in the same country, um, even if they're not totally happy with whatever the government in power is doing. But once you get into religion as a factor in all of this, there is no way for either side to com compromise. And that's what gets the violence. And that's what leads to these horrible outcomes where, uh, and this happened in Rwanda, and I think to an extent it happened in Cambodia, where um, ethnicity and religion uh, became the supreme sort of motivating force, and you had to destroy the other minority ethnicity or the other minority religion. I just had two more questions. I'm seeing a lot of articles coming out in the past few days uh, in The Times and The Guardian and The Spectator saying we could be looking at a third intifada. Uh, how likely do you think that is? Well, I know everybody talks about a third intifada, and I don't know what form this is going to take. I think it's just going to continue to go down the tubes, uh, either at a slower rate or a faster rate. Uh, I mean, already the Palestinians are resisting. We're just not calling it uh, an intifada. Um, and um, so I, I, I just have very little hope. Um, for this situation. I think that violence will continue. Terror attacks will continue. Palestinians and Israelis, we have to keep in mind that this violence doesn't only impact Palestinians. Israelis are killed as well. And that's something that the Israelis don't want to talk about. They want to talk about, you know, we have to kill Palestinians because we have to defend ourselves. But they don't accept that there's a cost on their side. They view the cost of the Israelis being killed as a necessary evil that they have to uh, sort of absorb that in order to defend themselves. And they don't understand that their policies are what cause the Israeli Jews to be killed. There is that disconnect in, in among Israelis and that sense of victimization that, that the Israelis are the ones who are victims of the Palestinians. There's no recognition that Israel is actually um, victimizing the Palestinians, and that it has much more power, military power, to do that than uh, the Palestinians have to uh, make Israelis victims. So, um, yeah. Very last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I don't even know if you'll have any thoughts on this. Maybe it's a little bit far afield of what we've been talking about, but um, there's th you, you and I both know that um, there's only a small number of independent outlets that are really covering this issue and sort of looking at things from a, a Palestinian side of things or or a, even a liberal Jewish aspect. Um, and recently we saw that um, TikTok has apparently permanently banned um, Mondo Weiss uh, from, from their social media. Uh, I don't know if you have any <laughs> thoughts about that, but 
I hadn't thought I hadn't heard that. That's ridiculous. Um, but it is an indication of the power of the Israel lobby. We haven't talked about that, but the Israel lobby, um, the the um, attempt, the campaign to uh, make the international Holocaust remembrance uh, definition of anti-Semitism, which basically uh, criminalizes. Uh, that's maybe too strong a term, but it it. Um, it, it uh, declares basically that criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Um, and then it gets that in that definition uh, um, uh, in, um, input into policy so that corporations use that uh, IHRA definition in order to determine what policies they will use. And that allows them to reject or exclude someone like uh, Mondo Weiss, which is basically just anti-Zionist and hypercritical of Israel, um, but not anti-Semitic in any way whatsoever. I mean, I have my disagreements with Mondo Weiss and the personalities involved there, um, but uh, I, I would completely defend uh you know the 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 role that they play uh, in the social media debate, um, and I think that the Israel lobby is attempting to silence and police the uh, comments and and speech on Israel, and uh, they're attempting to narrow the uh, the level of speech. They're attacking academics who teach about Palestine. Uh, they're attacking human rights groups. Israel has declared six human rights groups to be terrorist entities, even though they have nothing to do with terrorism. What they want to do is they want to protect human rights in Palestine. Well, and Israel even, is even look at the attacks on, um, I mean, they're not unexpected because it's been done to each of the prior uh, UN special rapporteurs, but uh, the attacks on uh, Francesca Albanese. Yeah. Right. Um, and 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 they want to defang anybody like the United Nations that might uh, that that might criticize them. They want to basically call Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the Israeli Human Rights Group called B'Tselem, which called Israel an apartheid state from the river to the sea. They want to declare all of the documents and reports that they've created to be anti-Semitic. And um, that's exploiting the term anti-Semitism and exploiting the Holocaust for political expedience and political gain. And that silencing of speech is talk it's toxic to use that other term that I used. Um, and it's really damaging uh, because without criticism of Israel, we have a situation in which Israel is scot-free, has no limits and no restraints on what it, it will do or can do. And a government that is out of control, we've seen governments that, that are out of control. Look at what Russia, I mean, this is another argument, hopefully um, we don't have, but you can see what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You can see what other countries have done. You can see what Nazi Germany did in in World War II when a government, when a country has no restraints upon it, um, huge levels of violence and unprecedented types of human atrocities happen, and that's the damage to free speech that uh, the Israel lobby is uh, orchestrating with these campaigns. Well, Richard Silverstein, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. As always, let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work. My blog is called Tikkun Olam, and the URL for it is richardsilverstein.com. I also publish regularly at Middle East Eye. 
the new Arab and Jacobin magazine. So um, I hope that your uh, listeners and your viewers will take a look at those things and uh, and give a read to some of it. Next up, Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy returns to discuss New York Times op-ed columnist Thomas Friedman's writings over the years on Israel, with a focus on his coverage of a story involving Hollywood movie mogul and Israeli spy Arnon Milchan and an Israeli nuclear smuggling operation. Grant will also comment on Friedman's writings over the years concerning globalization and his most recent comments on Israel-Palestine. All that and much, much more in the conversation to follow. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Grant F. Smith. Welcome back to Parallax Views, Grant F. Smith director of the Institute for Research Middle East Policy in Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Grant? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. So, Grant, I had to have you back on uh, because you have a new article up at IRMEP uh, that deals with uh, a number of different topics. Um, movies even come into play a little bit, but we'll get into that later. Uh, but it's yeah. about Thomas Friedman, uh, yes. the New York Times op-ed columnist. And I know a lot of my listeners are not fans of him. And I'm not uh, a fan of him either. Uh, but yeah. you're you're specifically honing in on uh, Thomas Friedman's views on Israel. And I know as of late, he's at least offered like mild critiques of uh, Israel and the Netanyahu government. But uh, you you have you have a, a harsh view on him, I would say. Uh, you're you're I, not I, taking yeah. the uh, mild criticism very well. No, because, you know, I have to say he's been around a long time. He's born in 1953. Uh, he grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, curiously enough, where I was born. And so I feel like I kind of understand him and have followed him long enough that I'm seeing patterns emerge. Even when he came out with the book uh, From Beirut to Jerusalem, which is really his first major bestseller, and it really made him a star, Uh he always would say things in interviews like, oh, yeah, the Israelis are criticizing me. I'm getting all this feedback from uh, certain hardline right wing Jewish Americans. And so that's that's always been part of his uh, sort of presentation of his work. He uh, has been doing that for a very long time and has always really uh, been out there as kind of the guy who's in between everything. But what I guess what we need to get into is really uh, some of the things he does consistently in addition to that, which really drive uh, core, uh, I would call them Israel affinity uh, organization uh, policies, and even in the most critical moments, and I'm not the only one who's noticed this, by the way, uh, he seems to be really pushing things like the Abraham Accords and all sorts of policies in the region more as a major player and a broker than a reporter. We'll get into that, but uh, first, I guess, why did he come on uh, your radar enough to uh, write this article. I mean, I mean, just recently, I guess it was uh, this podcast he did with um, 
Peter Beiner, and I, I, I like a, a lot of Beiner's work, but he has his own history too. Uh, what was yeah. said in that interview that caught your eye? So the major hypocrisy that I noticed both in the interview and then going back and reading some of his recent material is that he's talking about this judicial Supreme Court crisis in Israel. And I know you've covered some of that uh, with sort of the Netanyahu Kavir attack on the Supreme Court over there and what that means in terms of possible annexation of larger portions of the West Bank, but then the undertone of maybe this will help Benjamin Netanyahu get out of his legal predicament of his very long term and very corrupt relationship with Hollywood movie producer Arnon Milchan. And it set me off because he, as a reporter, played a major role at the very dawn of that relationship when he kind of helped cover up what was going on with the Netanyahu, Milchan, uh, Smith smuggling network way back in 1985. He wrote an article that uh, really put to bed the idea that the Israelis had an active nuclear technology smuggling ring in California through Milchan's groups of companies. And yet he's writing this article sort of pointing a finger at Netanyahu for trying to rig a lot of that. So he's got he's got one leg in each uh, pool here back in 1985, writing stories that nothing was going on, really nothing to see here, move along. And now saying, oh, you know, Netanyahu's just trying to get out of his troubles. Uh, which stem from his relationship with uh, Arnon Milchan. So that that's probably what got me the most, the hypocrisy of writing something like that and yet still maintaining, again, this sort of longstanding, I'm just calling it as I see it. I'm just out here reporting on the facts. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, uh, in going back through all of this that I kind of noticed is uh, you look at Friedman's work and if you really internalize it, uh, especially some of the early books like the Lexus and the Olive Tree, um, he comes out with all of these sort of quantitative research free assertions. Uh, the central point of his globalization book there was that no two countries that both have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. That's been I mean, proven wrong since then. Uh, oh, it was it was wrong even at the time. I mean, it, it was so ridiculous on the, on its face, but it was trying to prove a point that, you know, once countries in this globalizing world are at a certain point of economic development, their populations will kind of you know, reject any uh, drive to war. And, you know, Panama's had McDonald's since 1971. I didn't stop the U.S. from going to war on Panama in 1989, 1990. Um, and then you look at Ukraine and Russia today. I mean, Russia had 850 McDonald's, uh, Ukraine 101. So, you know, uh, this is something that uh, he's a very good writer, I would say. He's a very smooth speaker. But he comes out with these theories and sort of uh, quantitative research free assertions. You know, in, in his 2000 book, The World is Flat, that hasn't aged well either. You know, uh, you know what's really funny? I was in a uh, 
When I was when I was going for my bachelor's degree in media communications, my teacher was like, and today we're going to read, you know, The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman. And I there literally go. just got up and walked out of the class. Oh. I could not do it that day. But go on. Go on. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you didn't go read it then, because it would have just made you, I think, uh, unaware of what was coming down the pike. Um Really, it was all about, uh, you know, anyone who's part of a global supply chain like Dell Computer will never fight a war. It's kind of a rehash of the Golden Arches McDonald's theory. So, uh, you know, and today with AI, today with uh, sort of uh, all of the issues with outsourcing and supply chains, it just doesn't, again, it doesn't stand up. And it uh, wasn't really a, a very serious book. I mean... To, to me, a solid piece of analysis that warrants a book-length treatment is something like uh, Testing Theories of American Politics by uh, uh, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page, which really talks about how little influence uh, the American average citizen has on policy. So the idea you know, in this country, it virtually doesn't matter what uh, average citizens think about anything. Uh, and they prove quantitatively that their policy preferences are almost utterly ignored where interest groups and elite uh, economic elites get their say a lot quicker. So Friedman doesn't really do any research. You know, he's famous and almost characterized as being a guy who talks to a lot of taxi drivers and, you know, gets his ideas from kind of wandering around these countries, which he's done, you know, for decades now. But, you know, the idea, he, he's been effectively debunked by many, many, many uh, writers as being very superficial on those issues. So, you know, it really, <clears throat> I guess the other thing that really caught my eye in uh, Friedman's latest work uh, was really how much cover he provides, uh, but also how much of an opportunist he is at key moments to kind of come in and then try to suggest the right way. And I think one of the important things was when he kind of teamed up before the Israeli elections with Dennis Ross, of all people, you know, one of the go-to uh, people for quotes when he was suggesting that it was a great idea if the Saudis could save the Israelis by opening a commercial trade office in Tel Aviv, uh, which would be a, quote, big psychological move toward Israel. And of course, this is all about supporting the so-called Abraham Accords, which are transcending the real conflicts, the real issue, I can't even call it a conflict, the issue of the Palestinians' continual displacement and lack of any justice for them with the idea that if only Israel opens up ties with Arab countries and exchanges ambassadors and engages in trade, that they can transcend the issue that's most important, which is a just resolution to the plight of the Palestinians. So he was totally on board with that. He was actually, you know, and, and real looking quick, real quick. Can you can yeah. you let my listeners know in case they're unfamiliar who Dennis Ross is? Yeah. So Dennis Ross is the perennial Middle East envoy who functions in all administrations, who uh, has an effective lobby that he should always be in 
Washington at the center of policymaking. He's been referred to as Israel's lawyer. Um, you know, when it, it was uh, when he's out of office, he's kind of over in Jerusalem working for a Jewish agency think tank for the Israelis working on policy issues. So he's very closely identified as uh, a mover and shaker who is essentially not at all credible as somebody who is representing and looking at all sides of the issue. He's really considered to be uh, advancing the Israeli cause in any given uh, moment. So, you know, he he is uh, Mr. Quintessential um, lobby supported uh, policy apparatchnik. He headed up the Washington Institute for Near East Policy for a, a very long time and has been a non-resident and resident fellow there, I meaning he's paid from an APAC, American Israel Public Affairs Committee cutout uh, that was set up by APAC board members uh, like and, you know, Martin Indyk and others to advance Israeli policy. So, uh, you know, not exactly a neutral figure, but he's a go-to for Friedman for many of his articles. So, you know, it's, it's uh, I would say, really uh, convenient uh, to be suggesting that um, at a time when there's maximum pressure on Saudi Arabia. And I just had to note in the article that the Saudis have, you know, got every reason to hold out for movement toward their own peace plan, which has been pretty much ignored ever since they made it, which calls for, again, justice for the Palestinians before any uh, normalized relations. They wanted to do the opposite of what the Abraham Accords are calling for. And uh, this is pretty much uh, a demand that they abandoned that idea. And I also have to note that, you know, SoftBank, the Japanese investment fund, poured billions of dollars of Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth into Adam Newman's WeWork, and they lost it all. <laughs> and it, uh, it kind of raises the question of if that's the kind of... Uh, investments that uh, they could uh, gain through their commercial trade office directly, why would they ever want to do it? And of course, I had to mention uh, Project Jonah, which was you know on tap for hundreds of millions in UAE funds. Um, it's just, uh, it kind of defies logic to me when I look at the investments that they have been cajoled into making, um, why they would want to do that and abandon, again, uh, the thing that many of these countries have been driving towards for decades, which is a just uh, resolution to the Palestinian plight. So very, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting to see how much uh, Friedman has really abandoned kind of uh, his earlier, I would say, uh, less pushy approach to really trying to become a player. I think Middle East Eye has done some very good pieces on Friedman's transformation into more of a policy player uh, and less of a reporter in recent years. Yeah, and it's interesting that article he wrote about Saudi Arabia. It was, uh, I think it was entitled "Only Saudi Arabian Israeli Arabs Can Save Israel as a Jewish Democracy." And right. He's just going on and on about you know, and all of this would serve Saudi <laughs> economic interests. <laughs> Right, uh, right. You know, and and as you said, when you look at things like 
WeWork and that boondoggle or Project Jonah. Uh, maybe there's reasons <laughs> the uh, Saudis shouldn't be as on board with, you know, this in terms of their economic interests. There is a track record. I mean, if you try to, as as was tried uh, in uh, in the case of Project Jonah, to steer UAE to invest $200 million in what's basically an Israeli startup called Aquamouth, which has tried to get into tilapia and then salmon farming and killed most of the fish in the Negev project and been sued, you, you wonder if uh, they just don't read the industry news. And so it is, I think it is interesting, but even more interesting, I think, is, is going all the way back, which we did uh, in this piece to the 1985 New York Times piece, which uh, is titled, Israelis Deny Knowing of Export Bar for Device Usable in A-Bomb. New York Times, Tom Friedman, May 18, 1985, um, this is kind of a case in point of lack of follow-up, lack of research, because the whole premise of this piece was uh, basically the following. Arnon Milchan, the Hollywood producer, uh, was his companies were caught uh, exporting export-controlled devices that can be used as timers uh, to detonate atomic weapons. And uh, what Friedman did was track Milchan down. He had suddenly decamped from the United States and interviewed him, <clears throat> allowing Milchan to claim in the New York Times that he wasn't aware that his business had been trafficking in these items and others, by the way, missile components and guidance systems and things like that. And he made the argument, which was interesting, that... Uh, Maybe these sophisticated export-controlled trimers could be used for making a soup made of beans, carrots, potatoes, and beef, a traditional Jewish dish called cholent, uh, and that the kritrons could be used as a stove timer. Uh, pretty ridiculous. And uh, this was a story that always interested me. And we filed a number of FOIAs uh, for FBI and other records into what happened and discovered in 2012 through a FOIA release that this was part of an operation called Project Pinto, which was part of a LACOM operation, LACOM being Israel's covert espionage network tasked with stealing uh, especially nuclear weapons-related technologies, it was the network that penetrated the NUMEC facility in Pennsylvania, where all the weapons-grade uranium disappeared. And not only that, that uh, other researchers at the time, the very same time, uh, fingered Milchen for being part of the LECOM spy network. Like He was part of the spy network. So the idea that he was ignorant that these devices were flowing through his network of companies is is risable and the, real, real the quick thing, i was i was going to say just not to yeah. interrupt you but yeah no uh, when you talk about a figure like arnan mochan and people right. don't know who he is they're they're thinking to themselves wait this guy's a, a film producer and he's an israeli intelligence operative yes that's all true i mean you can go on his wiki i'm not that wikipedia is like the perfect source but like this isn't <laughs> conspiracy theory he was an intelligence operative 
for the Israelis. And also he's, you know, I think his film company, uh, Regency Enterprises, they did movies yes. like 12 Years a Slave, JFK, yep. Fight Club. Uh, so, like, all of this is, like, on record pretty much. He's an Israeli intelligence operative and a film guy, film producer. Uh, yes. He's, like, something out of a, you know, some James Bond novel. He's he's compared to James Bond, this sort of suave, um, you know, multi-multi-millionaire living the big life in uh, Hollywood. The stars come over. That's, in fact, how he was recruiting Richard Kelly Smythe to set up one of the front companies. Uh, Richard Kelly Smythe was just bowled over by all of the uh, glitterati that were circulating through Milton's house. And so he was saying, of course, I'm going to help you <laughs> get whatever technologies you want. And uh, that is exactly, exactly what happened. So it is a real thing. And some people might ask, well, you know, how does a person like that remain in the United States? And, and the answer is, well, that's part of the corruption scandal uh, that is unfolding in the Israeli courts. Benjamin Netanyahu spent a lot of time in 2016, 2014, trying to pressure the U.S. State Department to give Arnon Milchan a 10-year visa to remain in Hollywood making his movies. And so Wikipedia is a great place to go look at you know, every single movie that Milchan has made, and it's a very long list, but he's also been involved in the kind of things that if it happened with any other country, would have certainly gotten the person booted out of the United States. And so, you know, all of this is, I think, related, and it really says a lot that the State Department officials who were trying not to renew Milchan's uh, visa were overruled by John Kerry, who finally collapsed uh, over the pressure. And although they would never release any of the details about the visa uh, to IRMEP, we certainly tried to get it. Um, it was very clear that the holdup was really Milton's uh, espionage work that had targeted the United States and negatively impacted the United States. So and again, I mean, with with Milchan, the spy stuff, none of that is in question. You know, everyone right. should like be very aware of that. Like this not crazy conspiracy talk. It's interesting, too. So. Uh, you know, he's talking about these crytons and, oh, they'll, they'll be used for beans, carrots, potatoes, right, and beef. But right. really, you know, the real reason they're going to be used is uh, very different from that. <laughs> well, the, I left out the punchline to this story. You know, when we got the FOIA documents in 2012, it was uh, shocking to see that uh, the uh, source of the information from an FBI debriefing Richard Kelly Smythe, who'd been captured overseas after he fled the U.S. after being indicted for smuggling. He really fingered Benjamin Netanyahu as working at Heli Trading Company, which was the shell company in Israel that was taking the orders from the Israeli Ministry of Defense to source these sensitive technologies. So they weren't actually going to any sort of soup chain uh, to uh, manufacture bean, you know, bean and meat soup. It was for the Ministry of Defense to upgrade their nuclear weapons. So, uh, and then further documents came out uh, that we got under FOIA, including a letter that Smith, he wrote to Arnon Milchan about 
he was kind of threatening Milton a little bit, saying, you know, oh, your friend Benjamin Netanyahu, who I met with so many times <laughs> in Israel when we were working, blah, blah, blah. He was kind of hitting Milton up for money. You can read that uh, report. It's called Letter from a Malaga City Jail. Uh, after Richard Kelly Smythe had been captured by Interpol, he tries to shake down Milchin, I think, to avoid extradition to the U.S. He shouldn't have worried, though, despite being part of a smuggling ring targeting the U.S., uh, because he had managed to be on the run for three decades outside the U.S., uh, sort of living it up in, in Spain, uh, he was too old to serve any serious prison time, at least according to the judge. So like a lot of other Israeli operations, nobody really paid any price for the so-called Project Pinto affair. But again, I have to return to the fact that uh, I don't think anyone helped bury the story more in 1985 than uh, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times. And And again, it's interesting because... You know, this all comes full circle today with all the trouble that uh, Netanyahu has been in as of late. Right. Yeah, it's it's a heap of trouble. And I really appreciate the reporting you're doing on this. You're interviewing voices that uh, have incredible perspectives on this um, who aren't trying to, you know, cover up any of the extreme, uh, I would say, volatility of what's going on uh, over there and in the U.S., but I think it also, you know, to me, the story, and you know this, is never really about the two-state solution. It's not about the Oslo Accords. It's not uh, about what is necessarily being tossed around by Anthony Blinken as he travels through the region. It's really about how this stuff has damaged uh, credibility in the U.S. And I kind of close the article with that. Uh, observation that uh, when you see what's happening and how utterly gutted U.S. government agencies and the White House and Congress have been by this uh, devotion and lobbying effort uh, directed, you know, by the tip of the spear, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee to ignore these sorts of things and to prioritize Israel and to keep advancing it. Um, you know, what you begin to see is a lot of similarities between people like Thomas Friedman and uh, people running government agencies and getting elected to Congress, especially with APAC's help through their new PACs. It's just really, I think the story is not necessarily the death of the two-state solution that's been dead for a long time. It's really the legitimacy of uh, government agencies in our own government that is be succumbing to all of this. And, you know, with the help of diligent journalists like Thomas Friedman. So for me, um, it was, you know, really interesting to see Thomas Friedman's recent moves. I think he's becoming less and less of a credible journalist and more and more uh, an operative and international player who's pushing an agenda what do you say to people who will say uh well you know friedman as much as i just like the guy you know he's he said some better things lately when it comes to uh israel he's been critical of netanyahu and the the far right in israel these figures like ben Gieber. what do you say to people that are maybe saying oh well at least he's making some criticism now yeah i would just say that 
He's been doing that forever. Watch his interview with Brian Lamb on C-SPAN when From Berucha to Jerusalem came out. He's pretty much saying the same thing. Um, I think he realized relatively early on, even though he identifies himself as being part of an extremely strong American uh, system of shared values called the Judeo-Christian values, that he's got to do more than just uh, just report one side of the story. And he does report all sides of the story. He, meet, he met with Yasser Arafat. He met with the Syrian leadership. He went to a lot of places where, you know, you can get killed. And he definitely put in the time and the effort to listen to and write about all sides of the story. But, you know, when you read his opinion pieces, he's no longer the Middle East bureau chief. He's an opinion writer. Uh, it's always, you know, the Palestinian who has embraced the Zionist narrative who gets up to the top. It's always Dennis Ross. It's always the Abraham Accords that are the sensible way forward. So I would tell this hypothetical uh, person who may be listening that he's always been doing that. He's he's always been talking about how much heat he gets uh, from, you know, the Israel affinity community in the U.S. and from the Israeli government for his, you know, no holds barred reporting. But I would just have to say that his reporting, if you if you keep looking back, holds up about as well as the Golden Arches theory or the Dell theory. It's it's a lot of very entertaining reading, but it it just doesn't hold up over time. I would rather hear and you've highlighted such speakers, people who are talking about international law and less about the Oslo Accords. And yeah, the I'd, I'd rather be Accords. hearing from uh, I, I, we need more Saha Hassan's. Exactly. Like that, you know? <laughs> I didn't want to drop her name again, but I, I, I mean, had to drop her name. She's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, she is. She's absolutely uh, wonderful and she's principled and she is pointing the way forward. And she's not, you know, advancing any of this international norm, uh, you know, double talk. She's talking about what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to, and I think we should be trying to uphold international law, not, not the international rules-based order, but you've covered that before. I don't need to tell you anything more about the international rules-based order, substitute for international law. It's uh, yeah, it's a new world out there. And very dangerous, but I think it really helps, especially with voices as prominent as Thomas Friedman, that they be held to account and that their record be examined periodically. I mean, I don't plan on writing another piece about Thomas Friedman, but it's, uh, you know, it's extremely relevant to reread his early stuff right now as you see him sit down with Peter Beiner. I just had to uh, ask two more questions. Uh, you, you'd mentioned... Um... You know, there's a lot more talk now of, oh, the two-state solution is dead. You know, Friedman's basically saying, you know, the prospect of a two-state solution is gone. And then you have people like uh, the Israeli historian uh, Yuval Noah Harari saying, you know, uh, th there is no two-state solution anymore. Israel has opted for a three-class tier system, which to me just sounds like a really nice way of saying apartheid. Um, mm -hmm. It seems like more and more people, though, that are considered prominent are saying, oh, the two-state is dead. Um, how, what would you say to the people that are now coming towards this idea that the two-state solution is dead? Because it seems like voices like yourself have been saying, you know, it's been dead for a long time. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know when they woke up. I mean, it's to me, uh, the idea. I, I mean, the two state solution has been around for a very long time, ever since the British occupied Palestine and were administering it. Um, so it, it's not a new idea. Um, it was supposed to happen upon the creation of the state of Israel. It didn't happen. You had ethnic cleansing going on before the state was declared. You had a lot of conflict brewing. You had expulsions before the state was declared. But, you know, the idea that the 1993 uh, agreement to set up the Palestinian Authority, which, you know, many Palestinians don't regard as uh, legitimate and its perennial leader, Mahmoud Abbas, who hasn't you know gone up for an election in forever, um, that I think I think a lot of the promotion of it is about as legitimate as the Abraham Accords. It was something that was never going to work. There were some valiant efforts on both sides, but they should have stuck to international law. And, and what you're seeing now is that the workarounds isn't working. So I, I don't know where these people are coming from. You know, you know that we have these conferences usually every year. Uh, I don't think we've ever had an Israeli expert come to that conference and express any hope or confidence in uh, in the two-state solution. And the Palestinian leadership that we've consistently invited has never either. So I think it's a reflection of, of sort of the giant um, campaign to, to paint things a certain way um, and Sut Jolly, who spoke at our last conference, really showed it extremely well when on broadcast media, you've got, you know, you can put up this Hollywood Squares box of uh, news reporters all saying the same thing in the same way. Uh, it's a reflection of that, you know, mentality and approach to just putting out canards about what should happen in the region and the the demonization of this party and uh, you know, uplifting of the other, it just hasn't served anybody very well. And I think it's falling apart, finally. What's really interesting is I think pro-Palestinian voices are more out there than ever now. You know, I mean, there's uh, pro-Palestinian NGOs. I think uh, the BDS movement, whether people agree with it or disagree with it, uh, has had an impact. And I do think the discourse around uh, these issues has completely changed in the past, I would say, 10 or so years. Yeah, absolutely. And so you see, again, people like uh, Friedman and others pivoting toward the platforms that have allowed that, such as TikTok. And Friedman comes down hard on the fact that Palestinian voices can go direct and get millions of views showing the daily violence and repression they face uh, and he is saying that that's contributing to violence. Well, actually, a lot of it is just documenting violence. And so, you know, the idea that uh, Friedman is pivoting and using his uh, leverage to now call for uh, shutting down a lot of this is not surprising. And we see Mondo Weiss, their channel on TikTok has just been shut down with no ceremony. And Said Arakat, who had a giant Twitter following, although he's back now, you know, this mainstream reporter, uh, well, Palestinian reporter who's always at the State Department asking the questions that can never be answered by the spokesperson who's supposedly briefed. You know, it's just falling apart uh, and everybody sees it. And, uh, you know, I've seen some of the most creative educational TikToks where one person 
with a pith helmet, a fez, and um, you know, a kippah is acting three roles about Jerusalem that are more informative and entertaining and educational than most of the stuff that you can get on broadcast uh, media or documentaries for that fact. And uh, <clears throat> I don't, you know, I don't doubt that there's going to be a major effort to shut that down so that, again, we can uh, benefit from the wisdom, experience and informed views of the freedmen's of the world. Well, Grant, I, I want to let you get going, but um, how can my listeners keep up with your work? And also, I, I have a lot of listeners that have asked me in the past that maybe we could do a whole, a whole show on it at some point. Uh, yeah. But I have a lot of listeners that want to hear more about uh, the new Mech Affair. Uh, so uh, what would you suggest they they read if they want to learn about that? I know you have a whole book on it. Maybe you could um, uh, just plug that. Yeah, so there's a a great site at George Washington University uh, called the New Mech Affair that highly enriched uranium uh, from uh, the U.S. aid Israel's nuclear weapons program. So check that site out. It's uh, got an intro written by uh, Roger Matson, who spoke at one of our conferences at the National Press Club. He used to work at the Atomic Energy Commission, Nuclear Reg Regulatory Commission. He's done a lot of primary research, um, and they've got a lot of documents that IRMEP got through FOIA. So check those out. They credit us for those. For the longest time, the only site on the internet with actual documents from the FBI, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, CIA, et cetera, et cetera, were at israellobby.org. Uh, we looked at them from the angle that there were an awful lot of Zionist Organization of America leadership running the smuggling front, New Mech outside of Pittsburgh, uh, but they've overshadowed us a bit. But anyway, Roger wrote a book called Stealing the Atom Bomb, How Denial and Deception Armed Israel. So that's by Roger Matson. Um, that's a good book. Um I would say don't read the Samson option because the Samson option basically says that uh, the uranium Is wasn't that the, stolen. That's the Seymour Hirsch book, right? That's the Seymour Hirsch book. He really basically took the uh, view of plant owner Zalman Shapiro that they were just messy and lost a bunch of uranium and that the visit of Israel's top nuclear spies uh, was nothing, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think uh, he got hoodwinked. Um, you know, the other parts of the book are fine, but not that part. You can also read Divert with an exclamation point. That's a book uh, named after the FBI investigation into the diversion, which started around 1962 and went on and on and on. Um, the subtitle is New Mech Zalman Shapiro and the Diversion of U.S. Weapons Grade Uranium into the Israeli Nuclear Weapons Program. Very long title. It's got a picture from an FBI file of uh, one of the irradiators that was used to smuggle canisters of weapons-grade uranium outside uh, the plant into uh, Israel. The uh, FBI actually had eyewitness accounts of people on the loading dock seeing Zalman Shapiro supervising the transfer of U-235 canisters into uh, shipping components to get them out of the US. And all of this smuggling that took place in the 60s was very reminiscent of conventional weapons smuggling from the 1940s, which 
Um, there are only a couple books about him, and one is uh, Leonard Slater's The Pledge. But everything that they were doing to smuggle conventional weapons was kind of the blueprint for smuggling nuclear material, which, of course, is more compact and, you know, doesn't you don't have to seal it into giant boilers to ship it out. It was much easier. So I would check out that book. Um, it's got uh, it's it's got a. Uh, uh, paperback and Kindle edition. We're going to try and come out with an audiobook this year. But, um, and, you know, I would Google Roger Matson. He gave this stunning presentation at the National Press Club. I think he's got 50 or 60,000 views by now. Uh, just going through point by point what happened uh, and why there were never any consequences for getting enough weapons grade uranium out of the US to build a dozen bombs. So, um, I think this would be a great um, podcast series and trying to figure out how to make it more interesting. We continue to seek documents on this, by the way. And we did get some recent ones that can be found at israellobby.org of how the FBI was trying to get more cooperation from the CIA to get the investigation uh, resolved into the uh, smuggling. And two senators, Stuart Symington and John Glenn, went to CIA and were asking why there wasn't any movement on getting Congress more information about the New Mech affair. The GAO was involved. They wrote a report on it. <clears throat> Everybody wanted to know why there's no accountability over this. And the, uh, the documents are coming out about as fast as the uh, JFK documents. There's a lot of resistance to releasing anything. We have the names of files at the Justice Department, and all sorts of other places, but they just won't release them. So this is something we continue to pursue. And someday someone will make a mini series out of it. But it's it's very interesting and some traditional sort of uh, gatekeeper-y type uh, analysts have come out and said outright that uh, Israel definitely had the bomb by the mid-1960s. The only way they could have gotten the uranium to assemble simple gun-type devices in time for the 67 Six-Day War would have been from this source, not, not from Dimona. So I think, I think the information that is coming out and the analysis being done is getting better, although it's being overshadowed, of course, by things like Russia and Ukraine and the new Cold War. So we'll see if uh, the information flow stops. But uh, yeah, stay tuned for more. There's always more. Thanks again, Grant F. Smith. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Grant F. Smith and Richard Silverstein. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with Jerilax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else.
if we don't do it, others will be doing it like Greg. You know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.